Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we turn to 1 Samuel 17. Father, because we have your scripture, we know that Jesus is the greater David. We know that he fulfills all requirements for divine royalty, and we know that he has accomplished everything that a great and glorious king should accomplish. We know because of the Scriptures that our lives are saved, rescued, delivered because of Christ, the greater David. Lord, it's it's not enough for us to merely have cognitive knowledge of these things. We must experience it regularly. And so right now, Lord, we would pray right now that you would help us to experience deliverance, experience rescue, experience salvation, in a sense, all over again as we look to your word and we see life come forth and deliverance come forth. Lord, ignite our hearts toward your praise as we look at King Jesus. Lord, we want to confess that our lives get out of whack They get off course. They they head in wrong directions when our eyes get fixed on other things and other people and definitely other problems. But we know, Lord, that we can live life for your glory if our eyes are fixed on your Son, our great Savior, Warrior King Jesus. And so take your word right now and use your spirit to illuminate our minds to ignite our hearts, to fuel our lives for your praise and your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. As you're doing so, I want to declare the reality of uh, our lives. Uh, Life is challenging. It is flat out hard sometimes. Relationships crumble before our very eyes. If I ask for a show of hands, if you've ever had a relationship crumble, I imagine if you've lived any distance in this life, then you know what it's like to have a relationship crumble in your life. Jobs get taken away from us just like that. Money dries up. Health deteriorates. Success feels elusive. And joy feels more like a hypothetical situation than an ever-present reality. And in the midst of our challenging relationships and our difficult financial situations and our job problems and all of these other difficult circumstances, in the midst of all of that, you and I often have opportunities to stand for the glory of God. We often have opportunities to stand for the praise and honor and righteousness and greatness and majesty of God. But this is the thing. Because we experience difficulty and challenges and problems, we often miss those opportunities. We miss them. Because we're so fixed on our situation that we don't see the greater opportunity that our sovereign God is giving to us to stand for His glory. And I just want you to know this morning, before we look at any verse, that the glory of God is at stake with the decisions that you make and the steps that you take. The glory of God is at stake 
with the decisions that you make and the steps that you take. When you have the opportunity to help a person in need or to look the other way, the glory of God is at stake. When you have the opportunity to talk to your neighbor about the gospel or steer the conversation in another way, the glory of God is at stake. When you have the opportunity to pursue God in worship or remain status quo in your relationship with Him, the glory of God is at stake. And chapter 17 of 1 Samuel is one such moment in the life of a shepherd boy from Bethlehem who also happens to be the newly appointed king of Israel. Now, the events that we're about to read are really typical. They foreshadow two major events that are to come. First, the cross work of Jesus Christ, and then second, the lives of every Christian, even who lives today. Now, we will get to the cross a little later, and we will ultimately get to mine and your lives, but first, we must get in a time machine. And we've got to go back 3,000 years to about 12 miles west of a little town called Bethlehem where the Philistines are attacking the Israelites. And we're going to read, or we're at least going to study 58 verses. And in these 58 verses, really what happens, four scenes unfold. So for you note takers, you might want to think of these this story in terms of four scenes. Four scenes. And the first scene that we see is an intimidating warrior. An intimidating warrior. The Philistines have licked their wounds. If you can recall, Israel has chased them up back to their homeland. They have run after them. They have defeated them. But they did not utterly destroy them. And so the Philistines have licked their wounds from their defeat. They have recruited more soldiers. They've planned their attack on Israel. And as if, if Israel had thought that they had seen the last of the Philistine army, they are sadly mistaken. The Philistines have boldly marched right back into Israel, into their territory, and they are challenging the people of God again. And that's what we read about in verses 1 through 3. And essentially, the Philistines have come in and they're encamped on one mountain. And then there is a big valley. And then on another mountain, to the east, the Israelites are encamped. And they're close enough so that they can see one another, and they're close enough that they can hear one another. And so there comes out from the camp of the Philistines an intimidating warrior. His name is Goliath. Read verse 4. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. In other words, he was nine feet six inches tall. He would be a little taller from where my feet are all the way up to the top of the ceiling here. He was a big, big, big man. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze and he had bronze armor legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. What we need to know is that all of this armor weighed just over 125 pounds. He, he, his armor weighed more than most of you weigh overall. His armor had this, this coat of mail and then these like shin guards. And essentially, 
Every aspect of his body, nine feet six inches, was covered with hard metal, bronze, and iron. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. It was the re- what the author is saying is that it was unique. It was, this weaver's beam is kind of a unique way to, to fight in battle. Nobody else had this. His spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. The head itself weighed over 15 pounds. And his shield bearer, his shield bearer, went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of measly little Saul, cowardly Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. Winner takes all. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. If you look at verse 10, that word defy, defy is used over six times in this passage. And and he says blatantly, I defy the army of Israel. I defy the God of Israel. Not only do I stand up against you guys, but I ridicule you. I reject you. I spit in your face and I spit in your God's face. I have absolutely no reverence for you or your gods, is what he's saying. And the text goes on to tell us that time and time again. Goliath, the narrator is saying, is an undefeated, impenetrable, intimidating, trash-talking giant. That's what he is. And because of that, verse 11 is true. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly Afraid. I think our English use of the word dismayed uh, kind of softens what's really going on here. This word means filled with terror. It means utterly shattered. It can be used in other, in other situations for things that, that like glass or pottery that is shattered. When Saul and all of Israel looks at this real man, this real giant with this real armor and this real champion, they are utterly undone. They are shattered when they look at him. They are defeated before they ever even draw the first sword. And it says they're greatly afraid. They're not just scared. They're scared to death. And before we go any further, church, the story of David and Goliath has become a cliché. It's become something that has has a novel interest. But this is reality. There was a real army. And this was a real man. And he was a real champion. And he was really defying the God of Israel. That is scene one, an intimidating warrior. Scene two, we see an unassuming Shepherd boy. An unassuming shepherd boy. In verses 12 to 30, we see David's, we see David's identity first. He's the son of an Etherthite, a uh, uh, Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. He's from a nowhere place and belongs to a, a nobody dad. 
He has seven brothers, and he's the youngest of the seven and likely the smallest of the seven and the least respected of the seven. This is a nobody by all accounts. But we see his duty. For, look down at uh, verse 14 and 15. David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. If you can recall, what is David charged with doing for King Saul? He's playing music. He's a musician. Because Saul has this terrorizing spirit uh, that comes to him. And, and David's music soothes him and helps him in the midst of his terrifying spirit. But he goes back and forth to his dad's place because his dad also has responsibilities for him that he has to do, chiefly taking care of the sheep. And so David goes back and forth from Saul to feed his dad's sheep at Bethlehem. And for 40 days, the Philistine comes forward and takes his stand morning and evening. I want you to know that this is not an odd occurrence. It was common in ancient battle times that one individual would come and represent the entire army and basically challenge a person from the other army to a duel. Goliath is called in this text a champion. The word champion means to go in between. To go in between which means that this was the common occurrence of the Philistines, that Goliath would come between the Philistines and the opposing army to stand as their representative, to stand as their mediator, to stand as their ambassador. And so he would step out and he would say, I am the champion. That is, I am the in-between. You can't come to us before you come to me. So... That's what's going on 40 days and 40 nights. He's calling out the army of Israel. Anyway, Jesse says to David, who really has no knowledge of this, who has absolutely no knowledge of what's going on, he says, take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain and these 10 loaves. This was a common meal, especially for military people because it was easy to transport. It, It lasted a while. That is bread and grain. And carry them quickly to the camp to your brother's. And take these ten cheeses. Now, this was not common. This is more like a delicacy. And, and David's dad wants to give them to the commanders so that the commanders can enjoy a piece of good food as they're in battle. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. In other words, I want to know that they're doing good, so bring back something so I can know that they're doing well. And Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Now, just so you know, by fighting with the Philistines, it doesn't mean that there was actual combat going. They were each coming to the battle lines. The representative, the go-between, Goliath was coming out, but there was no hand-to-hand battle going at this point. They're just lining up every day, and then Israel's so terrified and afraid, they run and flee every day from Goliath. Okay, what verse are we on? 20? We said... So David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, uh, uh, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. 
And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. He taunts them. He trash talks them. And David hears it. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled yet again because they're terrified. They're shattered. And the men of Israel say, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. The king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Now verse 26 is significant because this is the first time that we ever hear David speak in the Bible. And what does he say? What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine? and takes away the reproach from Israel. Look at his allegiance. The first time we hear the young man speak, he's concerned about taking away the shame and reproach of the people of God. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy, that he should reject, that he should not revere the armies of the living God? Now this gets everyone's attention. The people say, hey, all this shall be done. There'll be a reward. Your family will be freed from paying taxes. You'll get his daughter as a wife. You'll get ultimate freedom. You will be esteemed in the nation if you go out against him. Now, Eliab, David's brother, if you can remember, was passed over as the newly appointed king, even though he's very what? Tall. He's very strong. He's very handsome. In other words, he's a better version of Saul. And he's been passed over. As well have five other brothers and six other brothers been passed over. And, and there is what's going on here. And I love this little part here because it tells us this is not merely a pie-in-the-sky story. This is a real uh, young boy who has real brothers and there's real sibling rivalry. You know what? When I read this over and over this week, it reminded me of the sibling rivalry between Joseph and his brothers from years past. It reminded me of the rivalry between Jesus and his brothers in years future. It's reality. And so you have a little older brother, younger brother trash talking here. And so what does he say? Why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? And you've got this little responsibility over these little things and you're not even willing to take care of that. Come on, man. And so he says, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart for you have come down to see the battle. And David simply replies, what have I done now? You're always on me. It's always got to be something, Eliab. What have I done now? Was it not a word, just a word that I spoke? Did I not just say one thing? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. Now, I think what the narrator wants us to know is that David is trying to get the army's attention. Over and over and over again, he's saying, what shall be done for the man who goes up against this giant? What shall be done for the man who goes up against this giant? What shall be the man who stands in the gap for the glory of the God of Israel? And there's only one way that he's going to get the attention of the king, and that is if the king's representatives hear about it and and cause the king to be able to hear it. And And so the people answer him again as before. We see right here in this section David's identity, his duty, his attentiveness, and 
And of course, the rivalry between his brothers. And what the narrator wants us to know is that David is an unassuming, sheep-tending, food-transporting, curious shepherd boy. It's what he is. But we're about to see the spiritual reality of who and what he is. We now see scene three. In verses 31 to 39, we see a conversation between kings. We have seen an intimidating warrior, an unassuming shepherd boy, and now we see a conversation between kings. We see a conversation between the old, unbelieving, rejected king and the newly appointed king who has a heart for the glory of God. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant. Notice the respect that David gives to Saul. He doesn't say, you're a cowardly king. He doesn't say, you you reject and resist your obligations, king. You're a bad king. No, he doesn't say that. He says, your servant. I'm your servant. I will go and fight with the Philistine and preserve your honor, essentially. And Saul says to David, you can't go. You can't do this. You're just a youth. You, 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 you can't fight with him. He's been a man of war from his youth. And David says to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has, note it, buzzword there, defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul looks at David's confidence Saul looks at David's courage. Saul looks at David and sees everything that he himself is not. And we have already found out a few chapters ago that Saul attached himself to every valiant man that he could find. And why did he do that? Because he knew he himself was not valiant. He himself was not virtuous, and he himself did not have a heart that beat in cadence with the glory of God, so he had to find others to do his job for him. And so what does Saul say to David? Go. Go. And let Yahweh be with you. And so Saul clothes David with his own armor. He puts a helmet of bronze on his head and clothes him with a coat of mail, straps a sword over his armor, And and David tries to go with that. And what I think that, that the narrator wants us to understand is that here you have Goliath, a nine foot six inch giant with a bronze helmet, a coat of mail, bronze shin guards, sword, spear, javelin, um, armor bearer, the whole nine yards, shield bearer, the whole nine yards, got all of this and he's huge and big. And then over here, you got David. And we don't know how tall he was, but he was not very. He was young. And it's almost like he's trying to make David a smaller version of Goliath. And it shows you a little bit of the heart of Saul and the heart of Israel. 
Because Israel wanted a king who would fight their battles for them just like all the nations. And Saul is trying to appoint a warrior who will fight against the nations in the same way that all the nations are. And I want to tell you something. There's a little bit of a secret message here. You can't fight spiritual battles with worldly weapons. You can't fight spiritual battles with weapons that are designed by and for the world. You've got to fight spiritual battles with the weapons that God provides and the weapons that God has sovereignly ordained for you to use. And so, David says, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David took every single one of them off. This is a conversation that happens between the rejected king and the anointed king, even though the rejected king has no idea at this point that he, David, is the newly appointed king. The final scene we'll call a fight for glory. We have an intimidating warrior. We have an unassuming shepherd boy. We have a conversation between kings. And now we see the fight for glory. Let's read it and let's enter into the situation. David took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. I'll repeat that, with his shield bearer in front of him. I just got to believe that this is in some ways designed by the narrator to be comical. Nine foot, six inches, bronze helmet, coat of mail, shin guards made of bronze, three different kinds of weapons on the back, sword on his side, everything is protected, larger than life, and he's got a shield bearer. And it goes right in contrast with David. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. In other words, he had no respect for the appearance of David. He had no reverence for David. He had no no, no respect whatsoever. And the Philistine says to him, am I a dog that you should come after me with sticks? Are you trying to play with me? Are, are, are Are you wanting to play fetch or are you wanting to go to battle? And so he curses David by his gods. Who is the major Philistine god? Dagon. Dagon. Let's remember Dagon because in a couple of minutes we'll see something very ironic. And so he says, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. I'm about to have my way with you and you're going to become food for the animals. And David comes right back to the Philistine and take very close note to everything that David says because we're going to look at it in a few minutes. He says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, 
The Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle belongs to the Lord and He will give you into our hand. Now when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it somewhere between 100 and 130 miles an hour and struck the Philistine in the one place that his armor did not protect him, his forehead. The the stone sank right into his forehead. And just as Goliath's God had fallen face forward in the temple, Goliath falls face forward on the battlefield. And just as Goliath's God was in a position that said, I bow before Yahweh, the the God of Israel. That's exactly what happens with this giant. He bows before the God of Israel. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. And David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and, rated R, cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, their go-between was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered the camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. And, but he put his armor in his tent. That will become significant later in Samuel. Church. Exactly what is happening here is a young man full of the Spirit of God, living for the glory of God, standing for the reputation of God, goes against this giant who defies God Himself and says, I will not have it. I think undergirding this this story, undergirding this event, is the providential hand of God that calls His people to stand up and be courageous in the midst of difficult circumstances. That's what's going on. That's exactly what David does. And we see him defeat this great giant in this moment. Now the text ends with a little bit of a commentary. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Listen, some of us are asking the question, doesn't, Doesn't Saul already know David? He's been in his court. He's not saying, I don't know David. He's asking whose son is David. And why is that? Because he's going to get freedom. The family's going to get freedom. The family's no longer going to be taxed. The family's no longer going to be under my rule because I have said that whoever goes out and attacks this giant and wins it, that whole family is going to, to receive that kind of freedom. 
And so he's the son of Jesse. Now you might say, but he has already told that he's the son of Jesse. That's not the kind of things that kings have to worry about when they're, when they're trying to lead a country. Those are the kinds of things that servants know. And so he's simply asking the question, whose son is he? Now as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him to Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul says, whose son are you, young man? And notice the honor that David gives to the cowardly king. I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Most young men have a lot of bravado. Most young men have a lot of pride. Most young men, especially if they accomplish something this great, are going to be full of themselves. But here at the end of probably what is maybe one of the greatest battles that's ever fought and one of the most valiant things that's ever been done on the battlefield, David has enough sobriety about himself and his place. He says, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And so we see the fight for glory. This glory here was either for the glory of self, the glory of the Philistines, the glory of Goliath, versus the glory of God, the glory of God's people, the glory of God's greatness. And we see who wins that battle. For those of you who are taking notes, you might want to write down right now, There is a God in Israel. There is a God in Israel. I think that if there's any statement that that hovers over this entire event, it is the statement by David where he says, there is a God in Israel. David had spiritual eyes to see that this was a seminal moment in the kingdom of God. And David was not overwhelmed by the bigness of this moment. He was calm, he was confident, he was clear-headed. And how was that even possible? Because David had a greater confidence in God than he had a fear of man. Write that down. David had a greater confidence of God than he had of a fear of man, even a giant man. And we learn one principle here, and that is that courage is rooted in knowing God's greatness. Courage is rooted in knowing the greatness of God. And not only that, it is remembering the faithfulness of God. And David would say, I know the Lord. I know that He is the God of heaven and earth. I know that He rules and that He reigns and that He's sovereign and that He's big. And I know that He has a people. Not only is He great, but I know that He's faithful. He's always been faithful. He's been faithful to me. He's been faithful to my family. He's been faithful to my my people. He's been faithful as I've gone up against bears and lions, and He has delivered me time and time again. I remember in the past God's faithfulness. And He would say, He'd say, also, trust God's provision. And because He's been faithful in the past, I know He will be faithful now. I know he has a track record of trustworthiness. And because he has a track record of of trustworthiness, he now will deliver me. I have confidence in him because of who he is and what he has always done. Courage is rooted in knowing God's greatness, remembering God's faithfulness, trusting God's provision, and then listen, representing God's glory. That is key, church. That is key, church. You are a representative of the glory of God. 
And in the midst, as I open up this message, in the midst of your financial struggles, in the midst of your relationship struggles, in the midst of your job struggles, in the midst of your difficulties with your family, difficulties with your neighbors, difficulties with with things at work, you've got to know that in the midst of all of that, you are a representative of the glory of God. And so every decision that you make and every conversation that you have and every direction that you take, God's glory is at stake and David knew it. It would have been easy for David to have delivered the bread, delivered the grain, dropped off the cheese and done what? Gone back. Just taken off. That's not his job. His responsibility was not a warrior. His responsibility, he was not a soldier. But he saw that the glory of God was at stake. And nobody else was willing to take that stand. Nobody else was willing to stand up for God's honor, God's renown, and God's fame. And he said, if none of these men are going to do it, then I will do it. And I want to ask the question today, where are the people of God today who are willing to take a stand for the glory of God? Where are the people today who are going to be an ambassador, a representative for the honor and renown of God at your workplace and in your neighborhood and in this neighborhood and in this city and in this country? Where are those people? I believe part of them, at least some of them, are right here in this building. I believe that the first principle kind of leads to a second sub-principle. And that is bloodlines, birth order, battle experience, body size, and any other measurable quality are irrelevant in the service of God. What matters most is having a heart for God, having a knowledge of God, having a trust in God, and having a confidence in God. That's what matters. It matters not whether you're a boy or a girl, a man or a woman. It matters not whether you're a teenager or a middle-aged person or in the twilight of your life. It matters not whether you have a great deal of experience or no experience at all. What matters most is that your heart beats in cadence with the glory of God. That's what matters. David says there is a God in Israel. And let's look back at 45, 46, and 47. Because church, we want to look at the actual slaying of the giant. We want to look at how that happened. We want to look at the little versus the big. We want to look at the swords and javelins and spears versus the little slingshot and the stone. That's what we really want to look at. That's what we want to focus on. But the reality is, there are 44 verses that lead up to the fight. There are two verses that describe the fight and five verses that describe the aftermath of the fight. What does God want us to focus on? God wants us to focus on that which we can't see, that which we must see spiritually rather than what's going on physically. So let's look at David's allegiance to the glory of God that motivated him. The first thing that that David would say is that this is my power. I'm responding to you, Goliath, and you're taunting and you're trash-talking. I have power. He says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. The fact is, Goliath, we both have power. Yours is physical, mine's spiritual. You have material weapons on your body. I have the arsenal of heaven behind me. You are defying God, and I am devoted to God. 
You fight for the glory of a false God. I fight for the glory of a living God. You're confident in your weapons and armor and size, and I'm confident in the God of infinite glory and greatness. That's my power. My power will defeat your power. And then he would say, this is my plan. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down, cut off your head, and I'll give the dead bodies of the host of Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. He said, this is my plan. Yahweh will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down. I will cut off your head. I will feed all the Philistine bodies to the birds and the beast. And I think we would say this is a bold statement. This is a brutal statement, but it's also a very worshipful statement. It is a plan to represent God's glory. And then he says, this is my purpose, that all the earth, that all the earth know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. Church, look at the end of verse 46 and verse 47. David gives two goals, two verbs right here. What are the two key verbs right there in 46 and 47? It's the same word. No, no. Knowledge is David's primary purpose. Listen, this is interesting about the story of David and Goliath. It's not about slaying a giant. It's not about severing a giant's head. It's not about the underdog defeating the one who is supposed to be big and bad. It's not about all of that. The primary, sto- the primary theme of the story of David versus Goliath is knowledge. He wants the world to know who Yahweh is. He wants Israel to know how Yahweh saves. Why is that? Because the principle that knowledge is power is a real principle. The more you know the greatness of God, the more power you have for the glory of God. Knowledge is power. When you take truths about God and sink them deep into your heart, such that they become more than objective knowledge, but they come an ever-abiding reality of why you live your life and how you live your life and for what ends you are living your life, then you become powerful in your situation. Whether it is a bad job, whether it is tough finances, whether it is a difficult relationship, whether it's family issues or anything else, you become powerful in that situation when you know who God is. So that's his purpose. He wants everyone to know who Yahweh is and he wants Israel to know exactly how Yahweh saves, not with sword and spear, not with javelin, not with giants, but with the power of God. And then he finally says, this is my proclamation. This is this, this overarching proclamation of David. He says, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David doesn't see this as, as his battle or Saul's battle or Israel's battle. It is the Lord's battle. It is about the Lord. It is about the Lord's glory, the Lord's power, the Lord's name, the Lord's renown, the Lord's people, and the Lord's promises. Not only is it about the Lord, it is for the Lord. It is for the Lord's glory, for the Lord's renown, for the Lord's power, for the Lord's greatness, for the Lord's fame. 
And not only that, it is through the Lord. It is through the Lord's power that this victory will be won. It is through the Lord's strength that I will defeat you. It is through the Lord's equipping that I will cut off your head. It is through the Lord's power and, your sov- and his sovereign hand that I will win. And so David is supremely confident in victory because of how he lays out what he's doing, his power, his plan, his purpose, and his proclamation. We must see that if we're going to understand how the Lord wants us to apply it. Now, church, I have one huge idea that I want you to, to, I want it to sink deep into your heart. I want you to meditate on it for the rest of this week. So write it down if you're taking notes. The war for God's glory is fought on the turf of your heart. The war for God's glory is fought on the turf of your heart. And it's won every day on the battlefield of your life. Now, where do I get that? Chapter 16 comes before chapter 17. And in chapter 16, God says to Samuel that man looks on what? The outward appearance. But God looks on what? The heart. You see, the reason that David was able to slay this giant was because he had a heart that was already given over to the glory of God. He had a heart that was already beating in cadence with the honor and praise of God. And because his heart was right, and because his heart was worshipful, and because his heart was ready to defend God's glory at a moment's notice, he was able to win the battle against Goliath. That's why I say that the war, the war for God's glory is fought on the turf of your heart first and won on the battlefield of your life every single day. But if your heart is not prepared, if your heart is not equipped, if your heart doesn't have the arsenal of heaven inside of it, then you will not be prepared to fight the battle every day. So when you go to work tomorrow, you might lose the battle. When you come home tomorrow night and have a difficult family conversation, you might lose the battle. You, when, you, when you head off to some uh, major decision that you have to make with another person, you might lose the battle. If your heart is not prepared and ready and primed and pumped with the greatness and glory and honor of God. So your heart has to be prepared before you can win the battle. Now, as you can tell by the preaching of this chapter You can tell, I I don't believe that this story is primarily about how you can slay your own Goliaths or how you can choose the right five stones or how you can rid the dead weight around you or how you can justify trash talking to your mean neighbors or, or anything like that, all right? This story is here so we will see the glory of God defended, the people of God protected, and a man of God devoted above everything else, to the honor of his God. It's here to show us that the newly anointed king courageously stands in the gap for the glory of God and his people. And listen, church, it is designed to ultimately point us to the ultimate anointed king who stands in the gap 
for us in the face of sin and death and hell and Satan and darkness and damnation. You see, David is a great example of faith in the midst of difficulty. He's a great model for courage in the midst of intimidation. He is a great picture of seizing the moment for the glory of God. But David's example does nothing to take away his biggest problem, Israel's biggest problem, and mine and your biggest problem. Church, what is our biggest problem? Sin. And David's example does not take away sin. David's example does not take away damnation. David's example does not take away our biggest problem. We need a greater David who will conquer the greater Goliath. What we need to know today is that not only is there a God in Israel, but there was also a God at Golgotha. And that God who came to Golgotha He also had power, and He also had a plan, and He also had a purpose, and He also had a proclamation. And His power, He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And before Abraham was, I am. He has spiritual power. He has infinite power, Jesus would say. And His plan... He said multiple times the Son of Man must suffer many things and rejected by the elders and the priests and the scribes and He must be killed and after three days He will rise again. That's His plan. And listen to His purpose. He says, shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No. It is but but for this person I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. And a voice came from heaven, the Father speaking to the Son, and He says, Son, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I have come into the world, Jesus says, as light, so whoever believes in My name may not remain in darkness. That is Jesus' purpose. That if you give your life to Christ, if you love Christ, if you live for Christ, if you deny yourself and follow Christ, you will no longer live in darkness. You will no longer have damnation hanging over your soul, but rather you will have life and light and love and eternity with Him. Jesus also made a proclamation that when He climbed up to Golgotha and and, and the nails were pierced into his hands and into his feet. And he absorbed not only the anger of man, but the righteous wrath of a holy God when he had absorbed my sin and your sin, when he absorbed the sin of the world, and he had paid every single price that was required for you and I to be delivered. He made one loud proclamation, and he said, It is finished! He's a greater David. He's a greater shepherd. He's a greater king. And he defeats a greater Goliath. This is our Savior King, Jesus Christ. And finally, church, there's a God in Israel. There's a God at Golgotha. There's also a God at Redeemer Church. The same God who delivered David against Goliath. The same God who delivers sinners at Golgotha is the same God who does not look over mine and your problems. 
He does not ignore our financial difficulties, our relationship problems, our job issues. He does not just skim over it as if those things are really not all that relevant. This is what he says. This is what he says. Because I raised my son from the dead and you are trusting in him, you will have power to deal with every one of those circumstances. And I will even say it. I will even say it. There are Goliaths in your life. The chief Goliath is your sin. The chief Goliath is the sin and darkness and depravity and, and the devil that seeks to, to, to wield his, his sword against you. But there are also all kinds of problems that you deal with on a daily basis. And because of what Jesus Christ, the greater David, has done, you can have power, you can have fuel, you can have ammunition to deal with every single one of them. Church, I'd like to ask you right now, if you would just bow your head in a time of meditation. And I want you to ask a question. Ask this question of yourself right now. Am I trusting in the greater David? Am I trusting in the great champion, Jesus Christ, who goes between me and sin and darkness and hell and damnation and the devil himself? Am I trusting in his finished work? Am I trusting that he severed the head of my depravity and my darkness and my deceit? Am I I trusting in all that he's done for me on the cross and how he proved what he did for me by the empty tomb? Am I trusting in that? Or is there a part of me that's still trusting in my ability? Am I like Goliath? I'm trusting in my size. I'm trusting in my health. I'm trusting in my armor. My armor might come in the form of, of a nice bank account. My armor might come in the, in the form of a nice paying job that seems to be stable. My armor might come in the, in the, in the appearance of a good family with a good spouse. Listen, a good bank account and a good job and a good family is all fine, well, and good. But if that's what you're trusting in, I will tell you, at some point, that head will be severed. And then what will you be trusting in? Are you trusting in the greater David? And are you trying to fight your own battles with your own strength? Ask yourself that question right now. Am I trying to fight my battles with my own strength? Or are you trusting in Jesus who has already fought the battle for you? Just stay meditating right now. Just think. David drew upon his spiritual knowledge his heart for the glory of God and he won the battle in the most unexpected way because he knew that the weapons of our warfare are not worldly they're not material You can't go home and sharpen a sword. You can't go home and build a bigger shield. You can't go recruit a bearer in order to stand in front of you in order to win the biggest battle of your life. No, you have to trust. 
You have to trust Jesus in the midst of this difficulty. You've got to trust Jesus in the midst of this hardship. You've got to trust Jesus and rely on His wisdom. You have to rely on His knowledge. You have to rely on His example. And ultimately, you have to rely on His work on your behalf. Church, I call you right now. Look at the greater David. Look to Jesus Christ and trust Him today that you might know that the battle belongs to the Lord. Do you ever ask the question, what if? What what if Jesse had not sent David to the battle line? What if God the Father had not sent God the Son to the ultimate battle line? Or more practically, what what if Martin Luther, a Roman Catholic monk, just didn't have quite the courage to stand up against the Holy Roman Empire? Or what if if men like Jonathan Edwards just said, I'm... I'm just not going to write that much and I'm not going to pastor that much and I'm not going to preach that much. I'm going to take it easy. Or what if men like George Whitfield just said, you know what, I just riding these horses up and down the, the eastern seaboard is just really not a lot of fun. It's hard on my back. I'm just, I'm just done. What if those things happen? Sometimes I ask that question because I'm convinced that we would not know a measure and a, and a glory of God's grace to a, gr- to a greater extent if God's people did not say, I'm going to stand in the gap for His glory. And sometimes I ask the question, what if I, and what if Redeemer Church stood in the gap more courageously, more valiantly, more confidently? What if we spoke up more? What if we used our wallets in a, in a wiser, more loving way? What if we used our relationships in our homes in a more hospitable way? What if we used our time in a more redemptive way? What if? What if? We're about to sing a song called, O Church Arise, is that right? O Church Arise. And it's calling us to rise up and just like David, to stand in the gap. And if if there's some part of your life where you realize you need to stand up for the glory and honor of God and the joy of all people, I invite you to come down front, kneel on these prayer benches, and give your life and your decision for God, whatever that is, whether it's money, job, relationship, it doesn't matter. Give it to God. Rise up and stand up for God's praise and His honor.